0: This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that XDEMV Lotolanor Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe.
1: This special episode of Pupil Pod Live, hosted by Young MD Connect. I'm your host, Cilla Ball, and my guest today is Dr. Brent Kramer. Dr. Kramer is a cataract, refractive, and cornea and glaucoma surgeon with Vance Thompson Vision. Dr. Kramer, that's a lot of hats, but thank you again for joining me tonight.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Yes, lots of hats. I actually did my first Ahmed tube with VTV yesterday. So, dabbling back into the glaucoma um thanks so much for having me so this is uh it's a true honor to be on this um you know really pupil pod is a podcast that's kind of exploded i've heard a lot about it and i've listened to a few of them already and um and again congratulations on hosting this awesome podcast during a very busy fellowship year so you're doing awesome with that and yeah excited to dive in
1: thanks let's get right into the case So this is an 18 year old woman who presented for evaluation of decreased vision, which was described as fluctuating from 2200 to hand motion. She also had eye pain and recurrent corneal erosions. Her past medical history included a diagnosis of complex regional pain syndrome, initially affecting the right lower extremity with progressive spread to bilateral upper extremities and the right side of the face. At the time of the visit, she was using three medications gabapentin, amitriptyline, and oxcarbazepine. Ophthalmic exam revealed whorl-like epitheliopathy and corneal haze. Now, Dr. Kramer, at this point, what additional exam findings and tests do you ask for, or do you really want to see in this patient?
2: Yeah. So the first thing um, when this patient shows up is I'm doing a little uh, Google biopsy to see what this complex regional pain syndrome actually is. Cause you know, I've, Never heard of this, um, you know, after, what, eight years of medical training. And so um, just kind of coming in with this history, has had lots of encounters. Um, I saw this patient at Duke, so she's got a long chart history and um, frequently visiting healthcare. care. Um, and so take a look, and it's actually this kind of degenerative nerve process, and we don't know what actually causes it. Um, And we don't have great ways of treating it. And unfortunately, it can be progressive. And so this is an 18 year old that's already debilitated from that. She has severe pain to touch on her right lower extremity. She's in a wheelchair. um, And she's, you know, otherwise totally healthy, right? I mean, it's just this kind of ill-defined nerve disease. Um, And so Right away, when you look at when you, you when you think of that, you start to wonder if there's some issue with the nerves, either cranial nerve five or cranial nerve seven. She's got this surface disease, and so um, when these surface patients hit my chair, um, you know, right away I'm I'm thinking, what's the tear film like? And so I like to um, always stain with fluorescein. Um, I think every patient, every corneal patient I see, gets a fluorescein stain. And I think that is the best way to assess ocular surface. There's a lot of testing out there and a lot of hype around dry eye testing. Um, and that's good, but nothing really does it like fluorescein for me. Um, Shermer is another just kind of old school way to measure the tear film. Is this patient making tears? You know, is this a, is this um, like a lacrimal issue? Um, so just trying to put this patient in the category. And then, you know, usually by the, by the time I'm seeing them, I'm getting some sort of topography. Um, and for this one, you know, the Pentacam is going to look crazy, but if you have another topographer and can actually see the Placido disc Myers, um, that tells me a lot about this. And so at Duke, this patient shows up in our ocular surface clinic, and we already have kind of our gambit of dry eye testing, and, put- and including like MMP9, tear osmolarity, um, and all of that stuff, and we, you know, come in. And then usually after you see them once, and you see this, and you kind of put them in that Nerve category. I like to test corneal sensitivity, especially if they haven't gotten cane yet or if it's been a while.
1: Truly all the things. And these patients are so complex that you really do want to assess all of the different levels of dry eye. And it's funny when you said the Google search, the complex regional pain syndrome, because it's true. These are, these are complex diseases that involve the eye, but really come down to the nerves and innervation. So with that being said, what are some of the additional findings that you would expect to see in this patient, assuming that you think that they have neurotrophic keratopathy?
2: Yeah. So when I'm thinking neurotrophic keratopathy, I'm thinking, um, you know, at this point, if if epithelium's intact, it's really kind of this world epithelial kind of diffuse staining. Um, and then, you know, specifically in this patient too, it's kind of been going on for a while. There's a, kind of this diffuse sub haze. You know, the epithelium's just been ratty and gross for, you can tell it's not over the last three months. It's probably been a couple, two, three years even when they got to get that diffuse haze. Um, and for me, that's kind of the stage one NK. Um, in addition to decreased corneal sensitivity. When they go on to progress to like something like a stage two, then you kind of get this chronic looking um, epithelial defect, right? I mean, we we know that it's mostly central um, and you get these kind of rolled edges of the epithelium. And I kind of remember early on in, in ophthalmology training, I just I was like, "How do, what do you mean by rolled edges? And it's hard to explain. You just gotta see these things a few times and you're like, oh yeah, okay. I never knew there were so many different ways to describe epithelium and staining patterns, but it is just kind of truly repetition. And that's why I think fluorescent staining is super important. If you just keep on staining, you start to get this pattern recognition.
1: And so much of ophthalmology is that, just building that repertoire in your brain of what things are supposed to look like and when they don't look normal. So let's just step back and go through the pathogenesis of neurotrophic keratopathy. I know that there are many causes. Can you talk us through a few of those?
2: Yeah, and so what I want you to think when you think of NK or neurotrophic keratopathy is decreased nerve sensation. So at some point we've lost the nerves that innervate the cornea. Um, and it, when you see this, I think the one, two, and three things you should think of are VZV, HSV, and VZV. Um, so anything in the the herpes virus category, specifically zoster and um, HSV. And I'll even go to the point where if you have a if you have a zoster patient acutely, they should probably be followed every six months for the next few years because it is a pretty frequent thing. And so um, you know those are. Viruses that live in the nerves and just go on to cause chronic denervation in the cornea. Um, Other things that can cause this um, that we see is chronic drop toxicity. So just chronic use of drops. So, you know, ocular hypertensive that's been on drops since they were 45, that's been on drops for the last 30, 40 years. Um, You know, they're on the COSAP with tanoprospermonidine forever and their eye just kind of looks really gross. Um, you know, the conge is really kind of ratty and the surface is just bad. I mean, that is early neurotrophic keratopathy. Um, And then, you know, another really common thing that we see in society is diabetes. And so those things can all kind of contribute to neurotrophic keratopathy. And those are kind of my big three. And then you get, you know, more of the zebras that you see more at tertiary care centers where there's some sort of damage to cranial nerve five. Maybe they had radiation from a tuber. Maybe they had a tumor resection. Um, uh, maybe they had trigeminal neuralgia or something like that. Um, and occasionally if cranial nerve sevens involved and, you know, maybe they've had chronic leg up, and exposure that kind of goes into neurotrophic keratopathy. And so I think, you know, the other aspect of neuro, neurotrophic keratopathy is you can develop it from other disease processes. Right. And so just kind of chronic bad ocular surfaces from dry eye, um, and, and other, you know, other diseases, um cranial on their 7 damage from exposure stuff like that. Um and then I'm also kind of looking at bad meds for the surface. Uh, the two drops that I really really hate the most are probably um I think it's really tough on the ocular surface. That kind of causes more conjunctivitis stuff, but I really don't like Cotorolac either. Um just as a general end said Um, I think it's great for short-term use, but if patients are kind of on a chronic EDSEN for something, Catorlac can really chew up your surface and kind of cause neurotrophic um, and just kind of neurotrophic keratitis and kind of eat up those nerves a little bit, so. You
1: know, as cornea specialists, we see so many of these patients on poly drops, essentially coming in with the bag of drops, all the different colors, very confusing. And then they have terrible ocular surface disease. Could you tell us a little bit, and you know, it's always very confusing, like the difference between toxic ulcerative keratopathy and neurotrophic keratopathy?
2: Yeah, when I think more toxic, and I I will say, you know, potentially a chronic toxic can turn into a neurotrophic ulcer, right? Um, But you know, when I think toxic, I'm thinking more of, Um, you know, I've been on Catorlac for, you know, eight weeks for the CME or 12 weeks for the CME, and it's just this diffuse four plus PE with, you know, a red eye and stuff. And so that's kind of more of an acute process. And typically with these toxic processes, if you just kind of do pull back and pull everything off, um, patients will usually get better from just kind of getting, getting off drops. And so, you know, I've had a patient show up even after six weeks of Catorlac. Four plus PE, red painful eye, stop the catorlac, come back stu- comes back two weeks later and, and looks great. For me, that's more toxic. Um, but you know, a chronic toxic could go into a neurotrophic keratitis where, you know, you you do a drop holiday and they still, you know, just are, still have a non-healing epi defect or this diffuse. And so then I think they kind of can be interchanged a little bit. This episode of To the Point
0: is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that XDEMV, demv ophthalmic solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe.
1: Okay, so coming back to our big question mark for this case, what is the association of neurotrophic keratopathy with complex regional pain syndrome?
2: Yeah, and so essentially... For her specifically, and this was, you know, kind of a one-off. This hasn't been, hadn't been described in the literature before, and that's where you know you do a Google search, but then you quick hop on PubMed to see if there's anything else that's been written up, and there's not. Um, and so we worked it up a little bit more. We we did do um, confocal microscopy, which we have a great te- had a great tech there that um, was able to get good images, and you, we just see there's no nerves. And so for some reason you know, she had denervation and we don't have the, you know, actual pathophysiological process nailed down or anything. Um, But, you know, it seemed to be right-sided. And we knew in like case reports from the disease process itself, that it is, it can be a progressive disease. It can go on to affect the face and cause like a trigeminal neuralgia and and stuff like that. And so this was kind of the first time we had described a neurotrophic keratopathy.
1: So fascinating. So, It's a very, very complex disease process just at baseline. How do we treat these patients? You know, it's it's, it's not easy.
2: Yeah, great question. So it kind of, for me, and I'll just kind of step back and speak generally for neurotrophic keratitis. So I see the patient for the first time and make the diagnosis. For me, stage one, not an emergency. Um, And, you know, and so I think you you really got to differentiate stage one between stage two and then stage three and to clarify what those are. Stage one NK is when you have a diffuse epitheliopathy. You kind of have this diffuse world staining pattern, and then also decreased corneal sensation. Um, Stage two is when you have a chronic epithelial defect. Stage three is when you start to get keratolysis, where you start to see thinning and ulcerative process where the cornea starts to thin out. And so when I have a stage three in my chair, um, they're usually not leaving without a tarsorophy. i you know, just because it's so hard to get those turned around. And so if you get corneal thinning, I really do um, jump right into tarsorophy as we get everything else going. But um, stage one and stage two, I pump the brakes a little bit. I make sure we remove any toxic drops. So I look at kind of everything. is Are they on glaucoma meds? Do we have room with the glaucoma? You know, are they, are they a glaucoma patient where the pressure has been 15 on on latanoprost for the last 25 years they have room probably for their for their glaucoma to come off a drop or two you know versus end stage glaucoma um you know then we're kind of maybe thinking we probably need to do a darista um something where we can implant a medication and, and get them off but otherwise i'm okay letting the pressure ride in the 20s a little bit if it's very mild coag with no visual field um definitely pulling off any NSAIDs I always transition. They usually come in on some sort of antibiotic and I always transition to moxifloxacin, something preservative free. Um, And then if they're assuming no super infection, I'm really just doing that once or twice a day to prevent infection. Um, And then, um, so that's one less is more, get them off all the things we can get them off steroids. I'm always mixed. I'm probably one of the most, um, liberal users of steroids. I really like steroids, but that slows down epithelial healing. And so maybe I'm getting them on a gentle steroid no more than twice a day. Um, You know, maybe once a day or maybe nothing at all. Um, And then looking to treatment, lubricate, lubricate, lubricate. So some sort of preservative free tear. I always recommend something viscous. So something more than a water drop. Um, I say I always like the consistency more of like a honey, um, like a refreshed salubisque or something with that consistency. Um, And then uh, definitely an ointment, something in a tube at night. And so if they can afford like a genteel sustained PM uh, or refresh PM, sustained nighttime gel, something like that. And then erythromycin or erythromycin ointment if they can. And yeah, so that's how I start. If I'm at like a stage two, stage three, Um, stage two, I'm probably drawing serum tears on the first visit. Um, I love serum tears. Um, and so if you can have access to them, draw them and get them rocking on serum tears, um, normally it's four times a day. I will go up to six times a day. Um, really tough ocular surfaces. I go Q two hours, but that's a lot of serum tears to go through. I'm usually assuming we're at stage two or worse. Um, the other really important thing is get the ball rolling on Oxervate. So Center German um, is the only FDA treat, FDA approved drug for Ox, or for uh, neurotrophic keratitis and it works wonders. Um, and so I think that's really important if you have no idea how to prescribe that medication, Dompe has done a wonderful job of making it really easy to prescribe both an expensive medication and a medication that's actually really difficult to use, Right. Um, but they made it so easy for us, the prescribers and the patients um, to to make it available to patients and to get it into patients' hands and to teach them how to use it. And so that's a eight-week, eight-week course of a nerve growth factor um that really does a good job. And so I say get the ball rolling because they can't go to Walgreens and pick it up. They have to order it and then it's mail-ordered to their house. I would say usually from prescription to when it's in patients' hands. I shoot for somewhere between 10 to 14 days is kind of my expectation of when they're going to get that Oxervate. So let's see, we've talked about lubricate. So, one, less is more. We're pulling off everything we can because all those glaucoma drops probably have preservatives in it. Um, you know, the medications can be damaging in and of themselves. So, you know, either preservative free or just get them off entirely if they can tolerate it, pivot to something like Durista, and injectable. Um, we talked about lubricate, 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 serum tears are great. And then we talked about observate. Now, if we're starting to thin out and we have this keratolysis process, um, tarsorophy. And if today's not a good day, come back tomorrow for a tarsorophy because we kind of need to stop this boulder rolling down the hill. Cause you don't want this patient to purr. If you don't want to inherit a post, um, Perforated NK patient, now they're post PK, um, they will just live at your clinic. Um, and so we got to slow it down. We got to do a tarsorophy, and um, we don't do enough tarsorophies for these patients, in my opinion. Um, and then, you know, keratolysis process, processes, I like to get doxy 100 milligrams twice a day, plus or minus high dose vitamin C, like, you know, two grams a day of vitamin C are kind of that's my keratolysis formula, I would say. All the things. There's yes, so the many picks. things. Exactly. Um, gauge your patient. I don't, you know, if if you think it's gonna be too much for a patient, start with what you think they can handle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then see them back a little bit more frequently. But usually these patients, if they're stage three, I'm seeing them back a couple times a week. So
1: exactly. And it's not it's not so much throw everything at once, like you said. It's start slow, see what works, and then just build on that. And that is truly. Exactly the most powerful for these patients, because again, it is such a complex disease process that we know so much about, but also at the same time, know so little about still today.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other, the tough part about this is they come in with blurry vision. They're not in pain. They're not super motivated to do a whole bunch of things. Right. Um, so
1: exactly, exactly. It's, it's always the toughest patients too, because you see the breakdown of the cornea, but like you said, they're not, they're not in severe pain. They think that they're doing okay. So this was a great, great discussion and such a good case. I mean, this patient is so young and dealing with so much, how did they end up? And can you summarize everything that we've learned on this episode? I mean, there's so much valuable information here.
2: Yes, yes, yes. Great question. So this patient, huge success. And so we actually, so she was at pretty progressed stage one, right? She's got diffuse epi-haze um, and and uh, hand motion vision. And so we took her to the OR and did a pretty, um, pretty aggressive superficial keratectomy. Occasionally we'll do like an anterior lamellar keratectomy where we just kind of remove that first 50 microns of, of um, cornea and find a nice plane and get it off. Um, and then we put on an amniotic membrane and then we started OX survey at post-op week one. Um, and then, you know, when she healed up from that, so after the eight week course of OX survey, so we're kind of three months down the road, we got her fitted in a scleral lens and we got her back to like, you know, 20, 25 vision in a scleral lens. Um, and so, it, but we're following her closely. Um, and so she, yeah, we kind of anticipate with the progressive disease, there's going to be recurrences. She's a young lady. Um, and so we follow her closely. And if we have to repeat, observate, we will. But yeah, successful story for her. So I'm, I'm excited for. Her. Um, and so just to kind of summarize NK, um, when these patients come in the door, it's stain without pain. They're usually not complaining of their epithelial defect. They're usually complaining of blurry vision. And so when I see that diffuse staining 4 plus or an epidefect and the, like, your, your eye isn't hurting, I'm, I'm doing corneal sensitivity either with the Cochet-Binet or, um, or with just a um, cotton swab just to see. Um, and then, you know, when we start treating these patients, less is more. So get them off as much as you can um, in regards to drops and always think about every drop you're putting on the eye. Um, and then, you know, two things that I think do really well are serum tears. Um, so you just they do wonders. So four, six times a day, serum tears can just do wonders for your ocular surface. Um, and then chronically, getting them in a scleral lens is great for your ocular surface patients. And then, you know, the treatment is Oxervate. So Oxervate, 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 get it going. If you don't know how to prescribe it, um, reach out to Dompe and they will get you in contact with the rep and they'll make it really easy for you.
1: I love that. Thank you. The stain without pain. I can't get that out of my mind. And I'm just going to say that constantly to my residents. So that's a really good take home for me. Dr. Kramer, before I end the episode, I ask all of my guests, if you could have dinner with one person from any time or place in the history of humanity, who would it be?
2: Boy, great question. Um, I'd probably pick my two favorite authors. And so I I cheat. I, I pick two, not one. Uh, So I have supper with Malcolm Gladwell um, and then C.S. Lewis, who are my two favorite authors. So just be awesome to pick their brain.
1: It would. Those are two really great authors too. C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Well, Dr. Kramer, thank you for leading us through this live episode of The Pupil Pod. I had a lot of fun. I learned a lot on this episode, and I hope that our audience feels the same.
2: Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Cilla.